Hi, welcome back to the Air Force Judge Advocate General School podcast. Today, we continue our conversation with Colonel Jeremy Reed about racial disparity inside the military justice system. Thanks. We hope you enjoy it. Here's episode 59. Some, some of the other things that I did want to pick your brain about on a, on a I guess, more finite scale, um, wanted to just kind of in no particular order talk to you about these things. And the first one is about the, uh, the fact that these reports that we mentioned uh, at the top about, about racial disparity in our military justice system in particular um, kind of showed that the... Uh, widest disparity tend to be minor offenses where there's a lot of command discretion, uh, like the, our failure to go and dereliction of duty kind of offenses where okay. there's, there's, no, there's no prescribed punishment and it's a lot up to the commander or even lower level supervisors to, uh, to meet out the, the justice, the punishment in those. Does that, uh, uh, I'd love to get your thoughts uh, on that and, you know, maybe why you think that that is, if it's a coincidence or not, or, uh, or whether, you know, whether it gives you pause or concerns you at all. It concerns me. Um, I would, I would be remiss if I, I said it didn't. Um, as to the why's, I think it goes back to the conversation we just had about unconscious bias. I think bias drives that conversation a lot. Um, I, I can tell you from my experiences, uh, things that I've been told, and I'll get to some of that also um, as being in this person, right, um, of, of what my physical stature is and all those things. I'm not a little guy. I'm about six foot tall. weigh about 230 pounds. I used to be pretty muscular. Now I'm getting, getting old and flabby. But... Um, I have a, a booming voice, as I've been told, and somewhat intimidating, right? I don't, most people who know me know me know I'm a big teddy bear and I got jokes, right? But those who don't know me just see the outward picture and frame. And it intimidates people. And I've been told they've been intimidated. I've been told that they were scared or, or scared for their life. And I'm like, really? What am I going to do? <laughs> I'm an officer in the United States Air Force. What am I going to do? I'm not going to attack you. I'm not, you know, but, but in those conversations, when you have it with people, people are telling you their biases, right? Yeah. And the thing is, is so when you look at on some of these, right, I've always said, um, you know, do we, so by, so by the time an airman, because the, the demographic we really are talking about when we start talking about disparity uh, and punishment are our junior airmen. We're talking, uh, and correct me to 100%, but we're talking E1 to roughly E4, E5. 
that's where we see most of the disparity. And then it kind of smooths out and normalizes after that, right? Right, right. Or at least it, yeah, it tapers after that for sure. It tapers, right. So, um, so first of all, that's most of the supervisors in that environment are junior themselves, right? And we're still discipling them on how to be Air Force airmen, if that makes sense. Because I made this analogy uh, last time I was with you all in person is the Air Force is like religion almost, right? If, if you prescribe to the Christian faith, right, you, you make a, a, a public pledge that uh, you're accepting uh, that particular uh, uh, deity. But when you do that, the church and the, and the congregation just doesn't say, okay, you're a finished deal. You, you go, now you go through discipleship, right? You come to service, you hear the word, you, you then understand more about the decision that you made and, and, and how you should carry yourself and what it means to be a disciple of Christ and, and all those things, right? So when you join the Air Force, it's similar. When you go to the recruiting office, you're making that walk to the altar, but there is a, there is a, a whole bunch of stuff from flash to bang to get you to be airman whoever at base X past tech school. Well, if you think about it, depending on the career field, we have a lot of young folks that are making staff sergeant, senior airman, um, two years, at senior airman, three years, senior airman, making staff sergeant four or five years of being in the Air Force. So they're the frontline supervisor. And they're still in their discipleship uh, process, right? So have they really gotten to the point where we've inculcated a culture of being a servant leader? Are they sophisticated enough to make those, you know, ask those introspective questions of why am I doing this and all those things? I would argue probably not because we're talking about a 22-year-old, 23-year-old, sometimes a 21-year-old. So we're still talking about young people leading young people. So my question always when we start, and we'll get to this, and so I might jump ahead on you, is we talk about progressive discipline, right? Yes, as sir. As a command, I always ask, so where did the progressive discipline begin? Did it start at counseling, mentoring, you know, um, you know feedback, all those things? Or did we just start with LOC, LOR, the first time they made a mistake? So part of it, it's, a, it's duality, right? And so if you just look at the numbers, the majority of the supervisors of African-American males will be a white male in the Air Force just by demographics. I, I'm not saying anything earth-shattering or racist or anything along those lines. It is what it is. And so then when you have bias and you are 22 years old, your bias may reflect in how you deal with that individual that you may have grown up in Iowa or somewhere in, in Montana and never been exposed to people of color or a person of, of African descent in America. So you may hold some biases. 
not, it's, it, look, I'm not saying that you're a bad human being or you need to be removed from the Air Force. What I'm saying is, is okay, let's deal with that. Let's deal with that. But it shouldn't be at the, the cost of a career of, of another airman. And by the time it gets to a commander, all of that, there's a lot of stuff that happens before it gets to a commander for that Article 15 and or uh, courts martial and or discharge. But where did the progressive discipline start? Did it start with all the front end stuff, all the hard work, or is it the knee jerk? And I told this story in front of the, the class. I, I, you may have been at the last one is, is I often ask my peers this when I was a squadron commander, when they would give an airman another opportunity, right? And, the, and, and most of my peers, you know, only 5% of officers in the Air Force are black. That's just is what it is. So the majority of my peers are white males. So I would ask them, I would say, hey, so in status of discipline or after status of discipline, hey, when you decided to, to maybe not go as far as you could and discipline that airman, what, what was in your mind? And usually, and this is a common response I get is, well, when that young man or lady was in front of my desk, I saw my son or daughter. Then my challenge question to that is, if that airman looked like me, do you still see your son or daughter? Mm. And if you don't, you may have some biases. So even that, even when they say that, so to me, that's a, a, a biased, bent response. When I see that young airman, I see my son or daughter. That means... There's something that they have a connection to, an affinity to, and I would assume it's probably their appearance. Yeah, that's interesting. So back to why I'm concerned is these are the deep questions and the things we really need to get after in these uh, crucial conversations that we have is what is your motivation and what sparks you to make the decisions that you make? The other part of it is, is getting to the actual whys. You know, I, I had to, I was meant I was out on the road. I was at McConnell Air Force Base, young, you know, Lieutenant. I, we were in a mentoring session and she was talking to my chief and she was prime listed. And she was now a, a second lieutenant. And she was going over how, you know, kind of just kind of gloating on how she was hard on airmen. And I, I stepped in and I said, uh, I'm going to challenge you, young lady. Uh, being a leader doesn't mean being hard. Being a leader means being fair and just. Being a leader means building confidence when folks don't have confidence. Being a leader means giving people uh, the tools and resources to be able to be successful in their professional and personal lives. Being a leader means being involved with them to the point that when they have issues in their life, you are aware of it 
and you are attacking the issues and challenges versus the who, the person. That's why I talk about the whys. Why is this airman always late? Do you know? Or you're just trying to correct the late behavior, not understanding the sub layers and subtext to why they're late. Maybe they're a single mom. Maybe they have two kids. Maybe one child has to be dropped off at the CDC and the other one has to be dropped off at school. Then at times the line to drop kids off at school is pretty long and by the time they get back to the office or get to your office, they're 15 minutes late. And all the things in the Air Force, is some Marine gonna lose a leg? Is some soldier gonna lose an arm? or lose their life because this airman was 15 minutes late. Now I get it, there's good order and discipline, but what's the why? Do you know the why? And if you can't answer that question to me, we're gonna have a conversation about the discipline. Because a lot of times we, when things go wrong in organizations, leaders typically ask the wrong question. They ask who? Instead of why. And if it's somebody that we think or have a predisposition to think that they're a poor performer and we ask the who and we hear their name, we, we drown out everything else that was said. It's like Charlie Brown, womp, 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 womp. then we're on, a, we're on a, 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 a road to going after and punishing the who instead of asking the why. And then when we find out the why, too late. That's a, yeah, that's a great, great point. Uh, I recall when I spent a couple of years as an area defense counsel, having a number of cases where my clients were served disciplinary paperwork without ever having a conversation with the commander who had signed it. Just right. They had been given a folder and it had everything they needed in it to make a decision. And, uh, and they just stamped something and handed it and had a first sergeant be the go between. And that was, there was no, no opportunity for the, for the why to even be considered really. Right. It sounds like you'd be an advocate of, adjusting that leadership style a little bit of 100%. That is my leadership style. I ask why, why is this here? Yeah. Bring the supervisor in. Did we talk to the supervisor? What, why? <laughs> because I think it's important because it's not just discipline. It's people's lives that we're affecting. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. I'm hearing a lot of parallels between this and a conversation I recently had with a, actually with an Air Force clinical psychologist talking about some of the best uh, treatment and preventative for uh, depression, anxiety, even post-traumatic stress symptoms uh, is actually that personal connection. You know, hopefully you have people around you uh, who, yeah. who understand what's going on, who are asking you and who you can talk to and Sounds like there's a lot of a lot of parallels between good good leadership when it comes to justice and discipline, and good leadership when it comes to uh, 
even mental health issues within your uh, within your organization. And as you as we started this conversation, remember, I started this conversation saying this is a leadership challenge. It's a leadership issue. It all intertwines. Yep. We extrapolate and 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 want to put. Um, we want to label things based on uh, what we perceive uh, in the environment, and 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 what we label people as. I I, I and you've heard me say this. The Air Force boasts the best and brightest of this country. It takes a lot to get this uniform on and wear it. And I talked about this. You got to score high on the ASVAB if you want to join the Air Force. We're the most selective service when it comes to our enlisted corps. You got to be able to run a mile and a half under, if you're male, 13 minutes, and for a lady, about 14 and a half minutes at the age of 18 through 22 or 24. Not many Americans can do that. Not many Americans can take a drug test and pass it. Not many Americans go, from the officer perspective, go to a top-tier university and get a bachelor's degree and then do all those other things and on top of that take an Air Force officer qualifying test that's pretty stringent and tough to get through also. Those airmen, those officers are coming from institutions all over this country, from Harvard. A third of those folks are coming from the Air Force Academy. Every year I look at uh, US News and World Report, look at the top academic institutions in the United States and the service academies are always in the top 15, all three of them. So, every, so a third of your competition as an officer are top tier from an educational perspective. And then you throw in all the folks that went to ROTC in Boston and Yale, Harvard, places like where I went to school, University of Texas, which boasts a pretty good academic uh, reputation in Texas A&M and Ohio State and uh, University of Southern California, UCLA, Oregon, all these places, Florida, University of Georgia, these are top-tier universities in this nation, and this is what makes up your obstacle. It is hard to get in the United States Air Force. It is not easy. So we're going to require you to do more. We're going to, re we're going to put more and more on your plate as leaders. Now, airmen aren't, at least my going in, my go and my point there is my going in position is, our airmen aren't dirtbags. They may be people experiencing challenges or may not be in the right fit for their life, but overall they're not dirtbags until they prove otherwise. You think that there is maybe a competing mindset among some, some leaders at, at all all ranks and stripes that maybe they're going in position is more like, I think I've, I'm in charge of a bunch of dirt bags and it's going to be my job to beat it out of them or to. I, I don't see, I don't see is that to that extreme, but I've heard, I mean, I've heard leaders say, 
uh, this person doesn't belong in my Air Force. Yeah. Well, who made you? Who made you chief of staff of the Air Force for the day? <laughs> yeah. You know, uh, my Air Force. It's our Air Force. So part of that conversation is, um, what does the collective have to say? And I'm not saying. I, I, I'm not saying everybody is, is worthy of wearing the uniform once they've gone through basic and, and tech school. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is is I give them the benefit of the doubt in the first until they prove me otherwise. But I believe that there are some that have a leadership bent that believe that some or most of the folks that they lead have to be... Um, somehow uh, I guess aggressively uh, assimilated into uh, the Air Force. Now I'm picking my words so I don't curse. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We appreciate that. Yeah. Uh, so another, I mentioned uh, early on that one of the catalysts for all these conversations was those reports that came out. Another one of the catalysts, a little more recently, uh, was the the murder of George Floyd uh, last year. Kind of wanted to yeah. talk to you about about that and kind of from your perspective, what was some of the fallout from that that you were privy to? What, how did the conversations go uh, among? command teams, command and legal teams, and, and other things you were a part of when, when that occurred and it started having ripples out uh, through the nation? Well, I, I'll tell you from the command team that I, I was a part of at the time there at Maxwell, uh, we did a lot of listening, right? And it goes back to a couple of the themes we've already talked about was um, what is actual bias? Um, then asking the question of our leaders, understanding what bias is after we kind of work through that conversation, do you employ bias when you're making decisions and do you recognize it in yourself? And that goes back to that introspective piece of doing that soul searching, right? Um, so a lot of that came out of those conversations. That, but at the same time, I, I think I think some people um, at a point were fatigued of having the conversation. That's understandable, especially when it's uncomfortable, especially when it it challenges you, and and is intellectually um, something you have to, to to wrap your head around and 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 think about, and it's not easy. So I saw some of that, too. I saw some fatigue about a month or two later of the conversation, right? And why do we have to talk about this? And why is this so important? I got, I got better things to do than talk about this. I've heard some leaders that wear stars say that and, and eagles. But it's important to understand the people you lead, especially when in society. And we're going to take it outside of the Air Force bent, right? We talk about George Floyd and that thing. So being a black male, I have always been aware of the police. 
Not that I feared the police, per se, but I understood that I had to carry myself in interactions with police officers differently than my friends that were Caucasian. We would say all the time, you can get away with stuff that I can't. I can't cuss the police officer. I can't get irate about this ticket. Yes, sir. Yes, ma'am. Thank you. Have a nice day. Don't make any sudden moves. I've taught my sons to put their registration above the visor. You know why I do that? Yeah, so they uh, they don't have to be reaching into any compartments. Down, dark, anything. Their hands can be seen at all times. I do the same thing. And I am a colonel in the United States Air Force. I've had interactions with police where they knew I was an officer in the United States Air Force, and they told me, son, that don't mean squat here. I'm cleaning up the language. To be a grown man and call son a boy. You've deployed and fought in Iraq and Prince Sultan Air Base and Manas and Iraq again. But for some, I'm still a boy. So the conversation is necessary because we live in an America where our airmen, when they go out the gate, are confronted with that. We have a lot of bases in the Air Force that are in communities where that behavior uh, occurs. So just from a force protection perspective, we have to be aware as leaders So to me, that was the conversation, the listening, what is bias, but outside of what we do inside the Air Force, you still have airmen that live in, live in America and live in societies where that behavior still occurs. And we have to do our best to protect them. But is it incumbent on the airmen of color or or from another nationality or creed or religion we often put it on the airmen well you had no you know the conversation you had no business being there or you know they don't like you there so why were you there But we have to do a better job of engaging with communities also in which our bases and installations are and make sure that our airmen are safe and also looked upon. Because when they're out of uniform, they're out of uniform, but they're still our airmen. So there needs to be a categorical change across 
the entire community, not just our airmen, in order to ensure their safety and that they're not engaged uh, in, in such a way. So that's what leaders like me do. And we engage with city councils and we engage with mayors and we engage with the communities in which our installations are. Are we, can we change the mentality of the folks that are at the, you know, just at the, at the level of residents and, and in neighborhoods? Probably not, but, but it goes into, but we gotta do our best. Yeah, it's a lot of a lot of important important work left to do. It's kind of kind of crazy to think about the things that uh that people people live through, people live with and the realities that uh that exist still and we're not talking about Jim Crow South in the 40s and 50s. No. And that's and that's what I meant early on in the beginning of this conversation is we still have a lot of work to do. Yep, I got a, um, I got a few kind of very JAG focused questions uh, okay. for you. Um, starting with, um, I guess you you've had the opportunity now at different levels of leadership to work with several several members of my esteemed career field, and uh, would love to know when it comes to this kind of issues. I, I know we're working hand in hand a lot uh, on, on this stuff in the last couple of years, but what, what are some of the things, the education and communication efforts between JAGs and commanders, uh, that, that you've seen done well and, and what are some of the, I guess, kind of the second part of that is what, what do you see, uh, are barriers to that working better? So I, it starts with the, the principal, right? Whoever that leader is, uh, that the uh, judge advocate is advising, um, they have to open the door for open, honest conversation that is not punitive. Um, and I think that rolls right into the second part of it is is the barriers, right? So, but I, I want to go back and make sure I, I, I unpack the leader piece. Leaders have to be comfortable with hearing perspectives that are not aligning with their initial um, posture or, or attitude about something, right? And be open to those conversations and at the same time, open to pragmatism. I think you get the best out of your judge advocates when you can kind of get in a room and behind closed doors, kind of debate it out sometimes and understand. Because I, I'm just a leader that I, I like a good, healthy debate. I like a good, passionate discu discussion. I think I get the best out of people that way. I get all the ideas on the table. But you have to empower people to do that. So that's, that's the leader part of it. The barrier is just that, right? Jags often are working for a principal that is in their direct chain of command and can affect their career if they don't line up with the commander's attitude and or prescribe uh, thoughts about whatever it may be. That makes sense. Yeah, yeah. I, I almost does. think the Jag Corps should have a a separate 
um, rating chain of command just as OSI does. Yeah, I often thought about that. Yeah, because we 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 have employed that in a couple areas, notably Area Defense Council and Special Victims Council. We we intentionally separate those chains of command. But uh, you're right; uh, most SJAs are advising the person who's <laughs> who can impact their career possibly the most. Right. So that 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 limits your advice, right? Uh, on, on a lot of scales, it it limits your advice because. You don't want to go when you think the boss is 100% off course. You don't say that. You say, hey, sir, ma'am, have you thought about this or this or this? That doesn't really get at the point that you think that they, from a legal perspective, are 180 degrees pointing in the wrong direction. And you're the legal expert. Now, commanders assume risk. You advise on risk. Totally understandable. But... JAs who have the ability to tell it like it is, at least from their perspective, I think are more effective. And that either happens organically through empowerment from the principal or through the system by having a separate chain of command. Yeah, that's a that's a, that's a cool cool thought. I hadn't spent much time pondering. Well, sir, we, we've reached about the end of the prepared questions I had and with some more thrown in there as the conversation dictated, but love to give you a chance to address or discuss anything that I didn't think to, uh, to include or ask about. No, but if you'd like for me to put a bow on it, I'll put a bow on it. <laughs> yeah, please do. Bring us home, sir. All right. So, uh, and I'm going to, I'm going to end where I started. Uh, Although when we look at disparity and we look at those, those numbers and who keeps the data, it's in the, the judge advocate lane. However, this is leader work. This is commander's work. And so your part of it is to inform and assist commanders make the right decisions as we go through and we look at justice, disparity in that justice in the, in, in the military justice system, and also how are we punishing airmen and what are we punishing airmen for? And also keep an open mind when it comes to these discussions about bias and, and, and the things that come along with it. We all carry unconscious bias. None of us are, um, are inoculated from that. We all carry some sort of unconscious bias. The key is to do the self-reflection, the introspection, to look inside and say, what are my biases and how do I check them and ensure that I stay objective as a leader? and also inclusive to those individuals who may not have the same things in common with you, the same affinities, the same likes, the same hobbies, but are phenomenal airmen coming to work every day, doing their best and leading the charge. You got to assess them based on their performance, not how you uh, uh, feel for them on a personal level as a friend or someone that you uh, have a, a, a relationship with in that way. You have to look at the performance and look at it objectively. And there's some barriers you have to get through uh, from a cognitive perspective on how do I get after that and how does that make me a better leader? And if you do that and you challenge yourself, I guarantee you, you will be a better leader in that endeavor. And so that's what I'll leave you with. Continue to strive to be the best technical expert you can, but your core competency in the Air Force, number one is leadership, leading, 
airmen and their families and ensuring their success and ensuring the Air Force's success through those avenues. I want to thank you all for the opportunity. It has been a phenomenal uh, uh, talk. Uh, actually said some things that I, I had some notes written down and we kind of got off script. Great questions. Uh, and I just appreciate you guys so much for giving me the opportunity. I'm always honored when you ask me uh, to, to have these talks. And hopefully I'm making uh, some, some, some headway and, and moving the needle in some of, you's all, uh, some of your, 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 you all's lives. I'm not going to touch everybody. I'm not going to affect everybody. I know that, but hopefully I, I may change and some of you and, and, and help you see uh, better ways of, of going about things and, and being more effective uh, and efficient as leaders in the United States Air Force. Captain Heaton, thank you so much for the opportunity. It's been phenomenal. Sir, the pleasure and the honor has been all ours. We're, we've enjoyed this immensely ourselves. Thank you so much for taking the time. And, and more importantly, thank you for, uh, for jumping out into this cause with, uh, with both feet and really just uh, doing what you can to lead this Air Force in a better direction. So uh, thanks, thanks for that. Thanks for your wisdom and input and, and you being willing to help uh, bring us along. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Air Force Judge Advocate General School Podcast. You can find this and all our available episodes, transcriptions, and show notes at www.jagreporter.af.mil podcasts. You can also find us on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. Please give us a like, a rating, a follow, or a subscription. Nothing from this show should be construed as legal advice. Please consult an attorney for any legal issues. Nothing in this show is endorsed by the federal government the United States Air Force, or any of its components. All content and opinions are those of the guests and hosts. Thanks.